to wait for you, Lord. Uh, And as we're in this period of praising you, of worshiping you, and also waiting for you, waiting to hear your word, waiting for you to tell us where to go as a church, what to do as a a community here in Eau Claire, uh, we pray that you would give us that patience. We pray that you would let us know that you are listening to our prayers and that you are listening to our time of worship. Lord, as we continue into our time of worship with the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, uh, we pray that it would be your voice that we listen to. I pray here this morning that it's not me that anybody's come to listen to, but that it's you. And Lord, we pray that all of us would hear your word, believe it, and go out and preach it ourselves in this community. So we give the rest of this time to you as always. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, Uh, and I am going to be seated as well, as some of you have caught on. I had a little injury this week, so walking and standing is a little tough, which I thought about it. Uh, There uh, uh, used to be a tradition in Jewish synagogues, uh, and we see this in, in the book of Luke where Jesus sits to read the scripture and the congregation stands. So I don't know, maybe we could practice that today. I'll spend a half hour preaching. You stand. No, I'm not going to make you do that. Um, If you would, turn to the book of Acts, uh, chapters 1 and 2. And I've got the verses right here for you. Uh, The verses for chapter 1 are verses 12 through 14. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Uh, And this is on page 882 in the Bibles in front of you. So there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you if you need to follow there. That's on page 882. Uh, And so I'll say those one more time. Chapter 1, 12 through 14. Chapter 2, 1 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount... Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's day walk from the city. When they arrived, they were upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all, to, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers." Now over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And I'm just going to read the first half of verse 14. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tons of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites... Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, 
Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Um, In the last community we lived in, it it was a really, really small community, uh, and everybody knew each other, whether you liked it or not. Uh, To give you an idea of how small it was, one day I got stuck in my driveway because of a snowstorm, and before I could call somebody to see if they could come get me out, a church member pulled into my driveway and said, yeah, my son was driving by and said the pastor got stuck again, so I came to help you get out. All right. So everybody knew what was going on, it seemed like, all the time. And there was a time where we cut a tree down in our front yard, and so we just had this little stump in front of it. And I was uh, having coffee with some guys at the hardware store. And uh, it was was the group of guys, I don't know if you've ever been there, where you just got nothing to add. You just, and so I just, I always just sat and listened. You know, it was the kind of place where I would listen and a guy would walk in, set a chainsaw on the table and say, that's what's wrong with it. And the other guy would start working on it all over a cup of coffee. And uh, one day I was with them and one of the guys said, hey, pastor, I noticed you got a stump in your front lawn. Any ideas what you're going to do with that? leave it? I don't know. Uh, and, and he said, here's what you do. This is the best way to get rid of a stump. You take a big drill bit, you drill about five holes right in that stump, get about half a gallon of diesel and pour it right into those holes and wait till the bubbles are, are done coming out and you just light that sucker on fire. It'll get rid of the stump. I'm pleased to tell you I didn't take that advice perfectly fine with a dead stump in my yard. But my neighbor must have been there with us because there was a day Emily and I got home and we stepped out of our van and it it smelled just the most beautiful smell of barbecue. And I mean, we stopped for a moment and said, oh, somebody's doing a pig roast. Do you smell that? Oh, that smells amazing. What kind of wood are they using? I don't know, but oh, man. And, and we started to go in the house, and, and I look over, and half my lawn is on fire. <laughs> and what had happened is the neighbor had a stump in his yard, and he did the method. He drilled holes, poured diesel, lit a match, and then went to work for the day. His stump was taken care of. But if you know anything about trees, even after you chop down a tree, those roots still grow. Those roots still think the tree is alive, and they'll keep growing. And it's not for a while that those roots finally die. And by the time they die, if you've ever seen 
full roots on a tree, they take up a massive amount of space. And so even though the tree was in his lawn, had been cut down years ago, roots had buried themselves deep into our front lawn. And that diesel not only burned down into the deep parts of the roots, but it started to burn over under our lawn. And so what happened is, Uh, Even though it looked like the fire was out on the stump, there was still a smolder under the surface that was making its way to the top. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit takes over in a church. On the surface, it might look like things are dead. And maybe we wouldn't use that word because I, I don't believe any church is ever dead. Okay, so maybe we won't use the word dead, but on the surface, sometimes it can look like nothing's happening. And what's really happening is below the surface, the Holy Spirit is moving in ways that we just don't see yet. There, uh, the Holy Spirit is moving in people that maybe we wouldn't even think the Holy Spirit would get 10 feet of. But the Holy Spirit is working in ways that we can't imagine. And what's happening in this passage in the first and second chapter of Acts is we're seeing the beginnings of a fire being set by the Holy Spirit that begins to take over first. The first ten chapters, it's just the Jewish community. And, and we see that it's only when Peter and the apostles are preaching to the Jewish people that they begin to see that Jesus is the long-awaited for Messiah. Jesus is the King of the Jews. Jesus is the Son of God. And they begin to repent and turn uh, to follow Jesus, to be with a relationship with God. And then what you see in chapter 10 of Acts is, and, and Peter even wants to stay away from it because he doesn't understand, you see the Holy Spirit begins to move outside of the Jewish community. And actually, the Holy Spirit meets with a man that isn't even Jewish and brings him to Peter so that Peter can preach the gospel to him and his family. That's Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, we see this conversion happen. And so what you see throughout the whole book of Acts is you see the Holy Spirit moving in incredible ways. And as the Holy Spirit is moving in these incredible ways, it's like a wildfire that catches on. Every time the name of Jesus is preached, somebody feels the Holy Spirit within themselves and wants to convert in order to follow Jesus. And we first see this happen with the apostles in chapter 2. And what's happening in chapter 1 and 2 is Jesus ascends into heaven. And as he ascends into heaven, angels come to speak to the disciples, who are now apostles. We have a new title for them. They're apostles, which is basically senators or representatives to a new country. And so we have this name for the disciples, and, and the angels appear, and they say, <laughs> almost immediately, they see Jesus go up, and he's hidden by a cloud, and then they wait there. Like something's going to happen next and angels show up and they say, what are you doing? Didn't Jesus just command you to go into Jerusalem? Go. And so they go into Jerusalem and they're in what's called the upper room, which is a special designated place for having feasts and having times of prayer. And so the apostles go, there's 12 of them, they select a new one to replace Judas Iscariot, and not only is there the apostles, but there's other followers of Jesus, other disciples, and we see that it's not just other disciples, but women are involved, which is extraordinary for its time. 
I'll preach a message on that another day, but there's 120 of them sitting in the upper room, and all they know what to do is pray. That's it. All they, they, Jesus just said, on an appointed day, I, my Father will send the Holy Spirit, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll know what to do. You ever have that kind of direction from somebody? That is the most frustrating direction to ever receive. When somebody gives you directions to go down a certain road and, and they'll say, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, just go down this road and take a left. But when do I take a left? You'll know. Will I though? Will I know? And will there be phone service for me to call you when I don't know when to take a left? And sure enough, you're driving and all of a sudden you realize you can only take a left and if you were to go straight, you're actually taking a right. That's the kind of directions Jesus gives to us as he says, wait for the Holy Spirit, you'll know what to do next. And we sit here as a church and we go, what do you mean we'll know what to do next? And so then we start to read books on leadership, we start to read books on missions, we start to read books on how to change what we're doing, all the while we should just be sitting and waiting for the Holy Spirit. And let me pause right there. It's good to read books on missions and on leadership because the Holy Spirit works through other ministers that are writing those books. There are countless times churches go through a certain book to modify their leadership and the Holy Spirit speaks to the board or speaks to a group within the church or speaks to the pastor. But the important thing is, is that you're waiting The important thing is you can't move the hand of God. You can't do something for God without God causing it to happen. If you do that, you're actually uh, just wasting your own energy, and energy you probably don't have anyway. This is the tough part about Christian living is sometimes we sit back and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and do you know what we do after that? Wait a little bit more. And we sit and we're wondering, is God ever going to show up and tell us what it is we're supposed to do next? Well, the apostles are waiting, and and I forget how long they wait for, but it's during the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is is a Jewish celebration, uh, which is about uh, a Jewish celebration, which is uh, essentially about um, the cleansing. Uh, It's about cleansing and preparing for God. And so, What Jerusalem is seeing here is people are coming in for that feast and celebrating that feast. And the apostles are waiting. And the scripture just says, all of a sudden, there's no precursor. There's no, you know, Peter doesn't get up and say, I see the Holy Spirit at a distance. None of the James doesn't give up, get up and say, I have a prophetic word from God and I believe God is telling us to do this or that. Nobody stands up, they're just waiting, and out of nowhere the Holy Spirit arrives. <laughs> what I would give to see that image of the upper room and the Holy Spirit descending, because the scripture says the Holy Spirit entered the room like a violent wind and he descended upon each of them tons of fire, or what appeared to be tons of fire. The best way the author, Luke, could describe what was going on is that everybody had the Holy Spirit like a fire on top of their head. 
and they knew exactly what to do. And this imagery is really fascinating because if you go back to the book of Exodus, who do, how does God appear to his people but as fire? And so he, he guides the people through the wilderness by fire at night, by smoke throughout the day. If you go again back to Exodus, how does God appear to Moses? He first appears to him as a burning bush. If you go back to the book of Genesis, when Abraham is having a covenant enacted with God, he falls asleep at the wheel, and when he wakes up, God is going through the covenant, but he's appearing as like a smoking pot. And you get this image that God is there like a fire, and and smoke is coming out so that Abraham can see him. And so when this Holy Spirit comes in as fire, you get this callback to the image of God appearing to his people as fire. And what do we know about fire? Fire can be dangerous, right? Not only that, fire can spread. And I think this is the image that God is giving his people, is that the fire isn't going to be contained within a few, but this fire is going to move out. And so the apostles go out into the streets. They know exactly what to do, and they begin to preach the gospel. And it says they begin to tell people about Jesus, about his wonders and his miracles and how he is the Messiah. And what I find funny is... is uh, that line where, where some people say they've just had too much wine. I like that because whether you realize it or not, people say similar things about us when we're preaching the gospel, especially when we're doing so in a way that comes from the heart and we really don't care what other people think about it. Uh, the Wesleyan Church was founded in abolitionism, which is that uh, we were founded on the basis that no man should ever be held a slave. And so we fought against uh, government mandates. We fought against slave owners. We established ourselves as a church that, that we would fight against slavery. On top of that, we also established ourselves as fighting for women's equality. I don't know if you know this, but the first women's suffrage meeting was at a Wesleyan church in Syracuse, New York. The Wesleyan church uh, was the most active in all of this. Well, when slavery uh, was outlawed and women began to have more rights and that began to spread all on its own, the Wesleyan Church sat back and said to itself, what is the basis of our existence? And what they soon found out is the basis of our existence was called holiness. We believe that God calls us to good living. God calls us to live just like Jesus had lived. And so the Wesleyan Church, we would have these meetings called revival meetings. And if you've ever been to, uh, I'll just call it for now, an old-fashioned revival meeting, watches aren't allowed. That big clock in the back, somebody would turn off to make sure that nobody was looking at the time. And they would love that these windows are covered because then we wouldn't know if the sun was still up, if it was going down, if it was coming up the next day. But in these meetings, people would give their lives to Jesus. And again, it would spread like a wildfire. The preacher would be up there preaching a passage, and then he would invite people to the altar, and it would be at the altar that people would give their life to Jesus. Not only that, they would go out and they would testify to others that they gave their life to Jesus, and they They've been made a new person. And do you know what people would say outside of these meetings? They're just emotional. They're just being sensational because they need more people to come to these meetings. 
That's what people say about us. And you know what? I find it a compliment. I would love it if somebody thought I was drunk because I was preaching the gospel too much. And that's what people are saying about the apostles is they must have had too much wine. And I love Peter gets up later and he says, folks, we haven't had too much wine. It's not even 9 a.m. But as the people are listening to the apostles preach, they notice something. They can all hear the apostles in their own language. You see, in, in ancient times like that, it was very common for people to know other languages. You had to do it. If you were going to do business, if you were going to go to the marketplace, you had to know more than one language. And so what you had is you had the official language of the Roman government. That was Latin. If you were going to do business with the Roman government, you had to know Latin. If you were living in in the Palestinian area, which is where Jerusalem was located, it was Greek or Aramaic. Those were the two main languages. And so if you knew one of those, you could do business in the marketplace. But then each household, each tribe, each clan had their own language that came from their birth and their parents and their parents' parents, and they would maintain that language because it was an issue of identity. And so that's why it's very important that they list all of the languages that everybody can hear the gospel in because what's happening is people are hearing the gospel in the language that they grew up with. I heard it described by one person, if you know another language, even if you know it fluently, it takes a little bit of mental work to hear that language, to translate it, and to speak it out loud. But when you hear your own language, it takes no work at all. Somebody called this your heart language. This is where just at the end of the day, what language would I rather speak? Well, for me, American English. I have friends that live in Nigeria. They speak English, but do you know what that is? That's Nigerian English. And by the end of an hour-long phone conversation, I am exhausted because I'm having to use different idioms. I'm having to think of words in different ways. That's just what happens when you speak another language. But when you hear your own language, there's a sense of peace. And so when the people are hearing the gospel in their own language, another way to put that for us to understand today is it's like when you hear the gospel And it applies to you personally. It's like when you hear the stories of Jesus, and they're no longer stories, but they're about your friend. And when these people are hearing it in their own language, God is using what they grew up with to learn about him. God is using their own words to describe his love for them. And they sit back and go, this is amazing. (laughs) I don't have to translate. That's incredible. And so they proclaimed to one another, we're listening to this in our own language, even though these men are clearly Galileans. And if you know anything about Galileans, they were considered some of the least educated people. But the people are realizing something is happening here that is far different. And then I would say the greatest miracle happens in verse 14. 
as tons of fire on everybody, and, and they're preaching the gospel in the heart language of other people, it's Peter who stands up and begins to narrate not just the life of Israel and where God started them out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes through the biblical narrative and he ends it with the person of Jesus. This is a man who in the last book was afraid to associate himself with Jesus. This is a man who had three opportunities, if you remember, three opportunities to at least say, yes, I know that man Jesus that you're accusing of. I'm with him. You don't even know if anything was going to happen to him. This man is now in the public square declaring, I know who Jesus is. He is the king of the Jews, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord of the earth, not Caesar. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that can save you from your sins. And so Peter gets up and he begins to preach. And, you know, Pastor Mark and I, we've talked about how long do we spend to prepare a message. And it's, it's anywhere between 10 to 20 hours a week that, that we read through the scripture, we go to the commentaries, we outline it, we make sure that we're not going to say anything that's unbiblical. In fact, that's one of my greatest fears is that I would say something unbiblical and one of you will correct me. Uh, but actually, if that does happen, by the way, please come correct me. Uh, that's just besides the point. But Peter, he didn't prepare a message. He wasn't thumbing through the Old Testament thinking, what's the best way that I can describe Jesus to people? He was in the upper room with everybody else praying. And that is very important. As the people waited for God, they were praying. They gathered together and made sure that they were speaking to God with one another. After all, isn't that just what prayer is? It's just being in a conversation with God, making sure that He hears what's going on in your life. It's kind of like, you know, when your kids get home from school, or, or maybe if you remember when you got home from school, and, and you sit down at the table, and the parents ask you, you know, so what'd you learn in school today? What was the number one answer you would give? Nothing, nothing. Unless something really cool happened, like you saw a frog and you threw it at somebody, you know, or somebody pulled the fire alarm. That's, other than that, you know, your answer is, well, what do my parents care about what I learned in school today? I did nothing. But as you become a parent, you start to realize, I, I do care. And even if you did learn nothing, can you at, at least describe to me what happened around that nothingness? I want to hear from you. That's what God says to us. In our times of prayer, he wants to hear from us. He knows what's going on in our life. He just wants to hear it from us. Mother Teresa, who was one of the greatest missionaries we've seen in modern times, started a, a missions movement over in Calcutta, India. And, and one of the questions she was asked was what her prayer time was like. And, and uh, she really stumped the interviewer because she said, well, oftentimes when I get into prayer, I just sit. And so the interviewer asked, well, you mean you sit 
and, and God speaks to you? She says, not always, no. He says, okay, so do you have a list of prayers that you say? She says, well, sometimes I'll say those if I don't have anything that I can come up with to say to God. Okay, so if you do have something to come up with to say to God, what do you say to him? And she says, nothing. She said, the point of my prayer time is that I'm just in God's presence. And if I feel the need to say something, I'll say it to him. But it's just nice to know that I can sit and God can sit there with me and we can just spend a little time together. And I imagine with the apostles, as they're sitting and praying together, that there were probably some lulls in that prayer time. If you've ever done prayer with other people, you know you'll get passionate and you'll, and you'll know all the words to say. Oh, Lord, let your fire rain down on us. And then you take a break. And then maybe somebody says, well, I... Uh, you have a restroom. I need to go use the restroom. And, and, and there's a lull for a little bit, or I'm thirsty. Is there any water here? Sometimes that's what our prayer time will look like, where we're sitting there and we're intent on praying to God, but we don't have the words. We haven't heard from Him. And there's even a lull where we don't know what to say and we just sit there. That's half of prayer time, is waiting on the Lord. And that's one of the hardest parts that we experience, not just as a church, but as individual Christians. Waiting for the Lord to speak. And we wonder, why hasn't he done anything yet? And you pray to him about what's going on. You say things to him like, don't you see what's going on here? We don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But you sit and wait a little bit longer. Because as we saw with the apostles, they didn't know when the Spirit was going to come. But he came, didn't he? It's sitting and waiting and being patient on the Lord. And then, of course, this is one of the most important parts up there with prayer. When the Holy Spirit does come, we need to be abundantly obedient to what it is he's calling us to do. We need to be obedient and preach what he tells us to preach. To preach to whom he tells us to preach. Or maybe to give up what he tells us to give up in our own life. Because if we don't do that when the Holy Spirit comes, we may not get another shot. Could you imagine if the apostles felt the rushing of the wind and the tons of fire on their head and then they said, wow, that was a great experience. I can't wait for that to happen again. Book of Acts would be one and a half chapters long if that were to happen. So when the Holy Spirit comes, we need to make use of him, so to speak, and be obedient to what it is he's calling us to do, wherever that is. I'm going to close with this story, and, and we'll be done. Um, it was February 2nd, 1970, uh, when something spectacular happened down in Wilmore, Kentucky. If you don't know Wilmore, Kentucky, the only thing it is, well, it's famous for two things, actually. The one thing that it's famous for is it was the first city in Kentucky to accept the new head coach of the Kentucky Wildcats. Uh, and so if it, 
All right, no Kentucky fans here. But it's very important uh, to that county especially uh, because the barber in that town has a big picture of him being the first one to shake hands with the new coach uh, down there, Coach Cal. Uh, so anyway, that's one thing it's famous for. The other thing it's famous for is it has uh, two, two institutions of education. That is Asbury College, which is now Asbury University, and Asbury Seminary. That's the seminary that trained me for ministry. It's the only, and there's a subway. So, I mean, that's, that's, I'm not joking when I say that's the only thing in Wilmore, Kentucky. But they made the news in the state of Kentucky back in 1970, it was February 2nd, when, when uh, they started chapel. Chapel service started at 10 a.m., and, and all of a sudden it was 11 a.m., and chapel service still started going, it was still going on. So the administrators thought, well, this must just be a really good chapel, and then it was noon. So now we're two hours into chapel service and it's still continuing, and nobody's leaving the chapel. And then it's 1 o'clock, kids got to get to classes, and chapel is still going on. The, uh, the dean of the university was gone. He had to make a trip up to Canada, and he said when he got into his hotel room, uh, or when he got to the hotel, they said, uh, you have a message from your university uh, and if you know anything about the late 60s, early 70s, that was a time when university students were doing sit-ins and protests, and some of them were rioting on campus. And so the university dean said, uh, when, when he got that phone call, he goes, oh no, they did it. They finally did it. They're going to protest at my university while I'm gone. <laughs> and so he calls the assistant dean back and says, what's going on? And he said, well, we've got a problem, dean. We started chapel at 10 o'clock. Well, that's fine. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, nothing was wrong with starting, but here we are, 11 o'clock at night. Chapel is still going on. What do I do? And the dean said to him, let him stay. Let him stay. Make sure that you and some other leaders are there to help guide the process, but you just let them stay and see what happens. Well, what happened in the midst of that is God showed up to Asbury Chapel. And, and if, uh, if you're interested in it, there's a short documentary I can give to you. It's called When God Comes. And it's, the, it's a documentary on the Asbury Revival. But what happened is the next day, more students were coming in. And when you listen to their testimonies, it is absolutely incredible. Because one student said, it was just in the middle of a verse. They're singing a song, and all of a sudden she said, I realized I had not given my whole heart to Jesus. And so she went to the altar. Another student said later in the song, I realized I had not given my whole heart to Jesus. So I went to the altar. Another student, can you guess what happened in the song? <laughs> they realized I had not given my whole heart to Jesus. So I went to the altar. Pretty soon the chapel was just filled with all of the students from the university. And they said there were like, I think, 10 students left on campus that hadn't yet shown up. And so some students organized within the chapel to go out and find them on campus and tell them what was going on. And one guy gave us testimony and he said, man, I was trying to outrun that bullet, but the spirit was faster than I was, so here I am. 
And not only were people coming to the altar, giving testimonies of what Jesus had done for their life, pretty soon they organized that some of them would leave the chapel and go to other Christian universities so that they can hear what happened. Do you know what happened when they went to other universities? People came to the altar because they said they realized they hadn't given their full life to Jesus. And what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on a church and comes on his believers is we can't help but preach the gospel and look drunk out in the public. But what happens is when people listen to that message in their own heart language and they hear it and they believe it, that's the Holy Spirit spreading like wildfire. That's the Holy Spirit leading among his church into the community so that others would know what Jesus has done for them. So what do we do as a church? Well, the first thing we got to do is wait. That's it. We just have to be patient. I don't know how long it's going to be, but I do know he's already here. I do know that we as believers already have the Holy Spirit in our life, and he's already working in ways we're not sure but we also need to be in prayer, intentional prayer. Times that we would set aside for the day and say, I'm going to sit and speak to God, and God is going to speak to me. And maybe during this time, neither of us will talk, but I'm going to devote it to Jesus. And then what we also need to do is when the Holy Spirit comes, we need to obey. We need to listen, and we need to make sure we're doing what it is he's called us to do. As I close this time in prayer, I want to invite anybody that wants to come up and pray with our prayer team. We have uh, people up here that will spend time in prayer. And, and so if you want to come up and you have something you would like to share for a prayer request, they'll be up here. If you're not able to make it to the front, um, if you have to stay in your pew or you're, or you're just not comfortable coming up in front of people, feel free to stay in your pew. Just have your hand raised. Somebody will come and pray with you, even if they're the person right next to you. So let's pray. God, as we sit and we wait for you, we pray that you would lead us just as you've led the apostles just as you led your disciples, just as you led every person that's come to know you, where they need to go, we pray that you would come and lead us where we need to go. God, we pray that this is abundantly clear uh, to all of us here within this church what you want us to do. God, as we sit and we wait for you, as we sit and we pray to you, uh, we pray that you would give us a sense of when you'll come and that you'll strengthen us with patience that we'll be able to sit and wait for your coming. We devote ourselves as always to you. We continue to devote not only this time, but as we leave this place, our lives to you and what it is you would call us to do. Amen.